Welcome home to the Tiny Hat Energy Podcast. My name is Amanda, and my commitment is to be radically vulnerable as I share my story, energy, and love with the intention it will help you as you journey through life. I am on a mission to help create a new world of love where space is saved for everyone's Tiny Hat Energy. My name for the energy present when we embody our most loving, vulnerable, and authentic self. Together, we will walk through both immense suffering, from trauma, addiction, incarceration, grief, and mental health, and immeasurable joy from overcoming suffering, finding my tiny hat energy, and living once-in-a-lifetime experiences. Every moment of my life has been a gift from grace calling me home to my natural state of love. After almost taking my life in a desperate attempt to stop suffering, I finally woke up and answered that call. I welcome you to join me on this journey of learning, unlearning, healing, and loving. I'm so grateful and humbled that the universe brought you here with me today, and I love you. Welcome back to the podcast, and I'm so excited for today's episode because I have my very first guest. So in honor of National Recovery Month, I have my good and dear friend Ty Logan here with me today from Heavy Mental Radio, and our episode is titled, It's All Recoverable. And so we're going to get into a little bit of our story because it's pretty interesting. We used to date. And we're going to talk about recovery and mental health and just this concept that we both believe in of, you know, it, it is all recoverable. So first of all, how long have you been clean, Ty? 15 years and uh, five months. Yeah. So it's April 24th, 2008 was the last time I used. So. Wow. Mine is uh, February 14th, 2015. Nice. So I'm at like, I don't know, almost eight, eight and a half years. Yeah, nice. It's really interesting because I actually don't even remember now. It's been so long and it's so normal for me. Getting into a little bit of our story, yeah. we met the day that I got out of prison. You were a friend of my mom's mm-hmm. and yeah. we started dating and we dated for a couple of months. Yeah. You know, over the last seven years, we've had kind of this really great friendship mm-hmm. that we've built and yeah. a lot of healing we've worked through. And yeah. so I'm so excited to have you here today. But, I, didn't, I, I remember you telling me I'd be your first guest, but I didn't even, it didn't even hit me until right now. So I just want to say thank you. I'm honored to be your first guest. So. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to hear a little high-level overview of your life, you know, mm-hmm. your addiction, your recovery, and kind of what your life looks like now. People talk about like marijuana being like the gateway drug, and the reality is trauma is the gateway. And I had a good childhood. I was one of those, I, I, you know, with the exception of divorce, and my, my mom and my dad, and then <clears throat> visiting my dad in the East Coast and coming back and then missing my dad, you know, miss, having that, and then they were fighting, so time to choose sides. Besides that aspect, I felt loved as a kid and I wasn't abused as a kid, but it was crazy how fast once I hit 18, that life just all of a sudden, you know, hit me. Friend was murdered in front of me, um, shot and killed. And then I went off to college with that event having taken place and went into a world that really wasn't me. You know, I'm from Tucson and I'm at this local, you know, U of A, you grow up watching Arizona U of A basketball and you're there and suddenly I felt like looked down upon, I felt judged, I felt insecure. And I was, what I didn't realize was that I was dealing with you know, PTSD, I guess. That term wasn't a term then. If anything, it was combat shock and that was for met, you know, military veterans. So reflecting back, it's so easy to reflect back and go, oh yeah, <laughs> obviously that's what I was going through. Trauma. Trauma, yeah. but at the time I didn't know. All I knew was I had a chip on my shoulder. I felt very much looked down upon and judged. And by the end of that year, I ended up getting an assault charge because a guy you know, started a fight and I punched him in the face. And then, you know, then I had to deal with being charged with felony and this and that, and then having to drop out and work and, you know, and then you started dr- drugs coming to play. I did say that marijuana wasn't the gateway, but it was the first drug that I did use, happened to use in high school. 
and after my friend was killed it didn't work the same after which is a very different story from most people most people especially like military veterans with PTSD can smoke weed and it helps them well it didn't do that for me it made me more paranoid I grew up in the era of this is your brain on drugs just say no dare you see all these commercials three of my uncles were on drugs one of them two of them are dead now one of them just died last year after 20 years of sobriety and he relapsed and that was kind of like okay well that's the path that hard drugs is I would never have thought I would have gone down that road. And you know, once you do, you're like, oh, at first drugs help. I think people see people in the streets and they go, why would you do that? Why would you do a drug when that's what it leads to? And it's like, that's the end result of something that really worked at first that stopped working eventually. Mm. Really just kind of like resonating so much with what you're saying, but it's just this kind of common thread of trauma, which is something I talk about a lot on my podcast. Mm -hmm. You know, same thing, just, uh, you know, I was a good kid and didn't really like play with drugs. I didn't really do any of that stuff. And then when I turned 18 and life happened yeah. and trauma happened, it, it helped until yeah. it didn't. And right. yeah, so obviously you got clean. You've got well, 15 years. Yeah, I mean, a lot, a lot more happened after that, you know, realizing that when I dropped out of school, you know, working for my stepdad, doing construction work to pay for my lawyer so that I wouldn't go to prison. They were trying to charge me with a class four felony. We ended up getting that work done to a misdemeanor compromise which is, you know, you pay for his reconstructive surgery and we pay this fine and you get, you know, reduced as long as you don't get in trouble. Went to Pima, um, got my GPA up because I did really horrible at U of A and uh, then transferred to NAU and went up to Northern Arizona Flagstaff, which I tell people a lot that that saved my life because I was, you know, hanging out with a lot of, I don't like to say bad element because at some point you become the bad element. You know what I mean? Like to say mm -hmm. I was hanging out with people that were doing the wrong thing. And so it wasn't really my fault because I was hanging. I think that's kind of almost not being self-aware enough to say, hey, I was not doing, my mind wasn't really right. I probably turned on some other kids younger than me to stuff. So anyways, going to Flagstaff, going to school, got a degree, didn't think I would. Went there just to get away from what I was doing. And the next thing you know, I have a college degree. And I do remember getting a job at Behavioral Health at 2001. So this was right after 9-11. I remember that day because everyone usually talks about when they saw the planes hit and I had been drinking the night before and was hung over and sleeping in the next day. And so everything had happened when I woke up and I felt so pathetic. I felt so helpless, hopeless, you know, here I am, you know, what am I doing in my life? And that's actually what made me get into behavioral health was watching all the first responders and, you know, but I knew I didn't, I didn't wasn't qualified for that. So I went to the newspaper and the first thing I saw was help others help themselves and was like, okay, what's this all about? And I, it, was the first, it was my introduction to behavioral health. I was still suffering from extreme depression, anxiety, finally got a medication and it did work for me. Antidepressants helped me. The problem was that my brain went, oh, that means you can drink and not be depressed when you're hungover. And so my drinking increased and I actually got a DUI which led to the termination of my job because in 2003, you couldn't have a fingerprint clearance card with a DUI. It's, it's changed now where it's just a driving restriction, but at that time you couldn't even have one. So my mom convinced me to move back to Tucson and all my fears, all my, of why I didn't want to come back here all came into fruition. Started hanging out with the same individuals, got back into drugs and then I fell into opiate addiction, which was what I think released, in my opinion, the gene or whatever that I couldn't use in moderation anything after that. Once that, I realized that was a problem and I got clean off that, it was like anything I used after that was then I was going full tilt with cocaine, with meth, whatever it was. It was, you know, I couldn't stop. I can relate so much to that. I uh, 
opiates obviously are a Mm -hmm. huge part of my story you know meth and heroin for me Mm -hmm. I had both opiates were kind of the game changer I've described it as the first time I used you know a light switch coming on and it just forever changed me it forever changed my journey with drugs and addiction it's so true when when people say that your problems melt away that's what I felt like I literally like oh who cares about all the stuff that got stolen including my computer with all my writing on there and all my stories that I had written since I was a kid all the songs I had recorded all those things that that art can't be replaced. That artistic side of me that was like, you know, there, it was like, almost like it was a part, part of my soul was stolen. And drugs was like, oh, you're good. Doesn't matter. You're back in Tucson. You hate this place, but hey, you know, you're okay. Oh, yeah, you're working in a grocery store now, but hey, it's good. You're going to school to be a teacher. Oh, I'm going to drop out because you can't handle that, you know. And then it, it was like, well, then you fall in love with somebody and then you find out they're married and then you, you use more to get over that and it becomes that crutch kind of a thing. And then eventually, like we talked about earlier, it just stops working. I think that one of the things that was big for me was looking in the mirror (laughs) and going, I'm the cliche, I'm covered in tattoos, I'm 140 pounds, now I'm unemployed because I was working as a bouncer. But that's but that's that's the reality of it is all of a sudden I'm unemployed, you know, but that still didn't stop. It took a lot more pain before I finally was like, I, I know that the next level is prison. Or the streets. I'd already gone through a lot of that kind of stuff before this journey. So I think that had I not, I probably would have gone farther down the path. Something so, you just said that really resonated with me was like about the pain and the suffering. Yeah. Something I talk about a lot in my, you know, mm-hmm. in my journey and my story is just like that constant state of living and suffering. And I really yeah. truly believe that we all have a different level and we all need to like hit that point where Like I said, you know, I just had suffered enough. I finally, whatever it was, you know, for me, it was prison. It was incarceration, losing my freedom, Mm -hmm. losing, you know, everything, but truly my freedom and being a product of the system. Like we all just like need to hit that bottom and it looks different for everybody can totally relate to the suffering. Well, I've worked with a lot of men and women getting out of prison and gone into the prisons. And so I was really impressed by your vigor when you got out. I mean, I work with a lot of people that, you know, they say they're ready and all that and they get out and they can still use. Prison doesn't save everybody. Like people think that you can't get drugs in prison or they didn't use because they were in prison. Whereas, you know, I used in prison. Yeah. There's tons yeah. of drugs you can use in prison. Mm-hmm. For a lot of people, that's where they decided not to blah, blah, blah. But, you know, it doesn't mean that that, you know, and that rock bottom for you um, is, is different for others. And I knew that that was my next, my, would have been my next um, de-evolution, I guess you could say. But I knew that was the next, you know, I'm looking at the guy who stole all my stuff from my storage locker was on drugs. And I'm like, well, that's going to be me. The literally the guy, you know, like the hurt people hurt people. You know what I mean? And it was almost like, you know, the abused, those who gets abused and abused people. I felt like, oh, my God, I'm going to become what, you know, created me. And I don't, you know, I don't want to be that evolution. And, you know, it took a lot of pain, like you say, but I tell kids now and everyone I work with that we need pain to push us out of unhealthy comfortability. We can be comfortably unhealthy and we need something to push us out of it or else we could quietly, silently and comfortably die. Yeah, it's totally like all my mottos, right? Courage over comfort. Mm-hmm. Suffering is a gift from grace that called me home is something I say. Like we, we need that suffering. That's really kind of what pushes us out. So before we get into your take on my story, yeah, I want to wrap up here. So you got clean yeah, and you had your son. Dylan, Mm -hmm. who's amazing and beautiful. You still work in behavioral health. You're working with Mm -hmm. kids. Mm -hmm. Bless you. (laughs) I actually used to work at the place that you work at now. um, And it's kind of like an intervention center for some of those really, really tough kids going Mm -hmm. through some really tough times. 
And you started Heavy Mental. How many years has it been? Well, 2017. So and about six years. CRC, yeah. Yeah. So, and I've actually been a guest on your yeah, show. Yeah, you were. Yeah. yeah. So this is full circle. Yeah. <laughs> um, totally. Explain Heavy Mental to us. Why you started it, what it is, and how people can listen. Yeah. Well, uh, 2008, I got clean, went back into behavioral health. Um, and then in 2014, I started working at the Crisis Response Center. And I was recovery sports specialist and quickly became the recovery sports specialist manager. And within a year, the um, medical director came to me and she said, hey, the radio station reached out and wanted someone to you know, share their story. And, we, and I thought of you and I was, oh, well, I'm, 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 thank you. you know, and, and so here's, you know, here's the information. I met with a guy and I'm like, so, okay, so are you gonna be the one who was interviewing me? And he kind of goes, uh, no, this is gonna be your own show every week. And then I was like, oh, well, I don't know. You know I kind of like panicked a little bit. But I knew my son was unfortunately moving to Georgia um, with his mom and stepdad. And I knew that I needed to get out of the house and do stuff, not just hang around the house. So I made the commitment because of that reason. That's how it started. And it started off as a half hour with guests on every week and then became an hour and then COVID hit. And then we was broad I was broadcasting out of my house and having to do it by myself. And so the format's changed a lot. It's not as easy as it was when I had a radio station to go to and you could, I worked at somewhere like the Crisis Response Center. but. I'm still doing it. You know, mental health conversations is what it's about. If you have a lived experience with diagnosis or working in the field, you can come on the show. Trying to spread the awareness. Yeah. Break the stigma. Mm -hmm. And really something I'm really passionate about and we're going to get into in just a little bit is kind of changing the narrative of yeah. mental health, how we talk about it, how we view it. So real quick before we get mm -hmm. into that, yeah. I'd love to hear a little bit of your perspective on kind of my journey this yeah. last seven years because, you know, my listeners get to hear me talk about it. Yeah. But now it's someone who literally met me the day I got out of prison, yeah. you know, seven years and, yeah. geez, I don't even know, four months ago. Yeah. And so I'd love to just hear like your kind of thoughts and especially seeing me this last year through my yeah. spiritual journey. It's quite incredible to watch someone truly grow and shine. When we dated, I mean, it, what's the funny thing is that you know, we have a big age gap. It was your mom who had reached out to me and said, hey, she's just getting out. You're the only one I kind of know that's in recovery. Sure, I'll, I'll meet with her. And then we had an instant connection. And, and then it was, of course, it was like, oh, well, he's older. And, you know, I'm like, I didn't, this wasn't planned. This wasn't like, you know, we faced that obstacle right off the bat. So I think that was one challenge that we had dating. The other one was, unfortunately, working at the Crisis Response Center, it's hard when you're all day working with people who are really at the, at, you know struggling to then meet someone who's right at the beginning of their journey because there's a lot of work that needs to be done and and so for me that that was what made the the relationship i guess a little bit difficult plus juggling my son and knowing he was going to be leaving soon and all that kind of stuff you were great with dylan he loved you i think that we needed the inevitable needed to happen of of of, of going different way different directions even though it was very hard because I do know that there was a love that we had, even if it was just for the soul of who we were. You know, I knew we genuinely cared about who we were as people. Yet I also knew that you deserved someone that would kind of go more on the journey with you. Where I had, you know, I started the journey in 2008. And when did you get out? 2016. So it was, I had already eight years in the, into recovery when you're just starting. And so not to say that that can't work, that, you know, someone who's just starting can't make it work with someone who's been doing it for a while but it was like i think everything for you was new and fresh the meetings were were exciting you were on that cloud and i was like three years removed from like i'd walked away from the rooms because it was like i have a fundamental problem we can get into that later but about 
you know, one one way only kind of mentality. Back to you is that, you know, you got to meet Eric and I think that that was the perfect person for you to meet at the time and you guys' journey now. And but to see you shine, you know, it's exciting because not everybody makes it. And I think that it's so important that you're doing what you're doing, that I'm doing what I'm doing in the sense of not, hey, look at us, but like this is rare and it shouldn't be. Yeah, I have a... A note here where I say, you know, all relationships can be healed and healing them together is profound. You always hear all these cliches. I really try to break these stigmas, but like you can't be friends with your exes or you can't be friends with the opposite sex. And it's like, I just think it's so cool. You know, my current partner brought me here, dropped me off. Y'all shared a hug. You've been in our house and you and I have had a couple of, you know, intimate experiences these last couple years of healing where we've gotten to, you know, hold each other and cry and heal and talk about our relationship. And so if anyone takes anything away from this episode, like show you all that anything can be recovered. And as we heal these traumas and have these healthy, complex, dynamic relationships, Mm -hmm. um, you know, that that's something beautiful and something to be worked towards. Yeah, and I remember when you had first reached out to me after we had been broken up for a while, as if like I was mad at you, and it was like I never had anger or animosity towards you. you. Know there was a sadness of you know seeing something end. I I'm the kind of person that for me personally, holding on to anger or hostility just makes me sick. But I remember how nervous you were because you didn't know how I was going to react, and then I think it was probably. I, and I can only assume, but I think it was probably refreshing for you to realize that I wasn't mad at you at all. And But it was also a good healing process for us both because it's silly to think that you can't still be friends with someone just because you used to date or because they're the opposite gender. It, it's silly to think that it has to be something that's not like spiritual and peaceful and genuinely healthy. Absolutely. I love it. Well, getting into kind of the core meat topics here, we're Mm going to talk about recovery and we're going to talk about mental health. Kind of like our two things that we talk about, right? (laughs) Both of our lives. And so starting with recovery, Mm -hmm. I've talked to you a lot about this, but I have a really strong opinion that all egos, aka your minds, you know, Mm -hmm. all people are addicts and, you know, have the potential to be whatever quote unquote an addict is. But we Mm -hmm. look at nicotine, food, video games, TV, drugs, energy drinks, Mm -hmm. working out, anyone whose mind or ego is, you know, out of control and kind of running the show, if you will, can be addicted to something. And so... I'm just kind of curious on your thoughts of like addiction and the masses and you know we're just seeing this like epidemic of everyone is addicted to something at this point Mm -hmm. I feel like. When you deal with who's an addict and who's not, who can use in moderation and and who cannot, that's when I think you lose the idea of what it is that people are struggling with. I know that people can use alcohol in moderation and yet I think that alcohol is the worst drug when it comes to those who are addicted to alcohol. So yes, alcohol itself is different than say heroin or meth or cocaine where you can, you can, there are drugs where you just cannot use those in moderation. Alcohol, weed are those two that people can and, and people are successful and thrive and I don't ever wanna take away from those who are capable of using in moderation. But you mentioned something that's so important is that anybody can become addicted to anything and yet who is to say what's healthy and what's not? Sitting on the couch watching TV for your entire weekend may not be out harming people or putting chemicals in your body, but I don't think that's good for your soul. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the point I'm trying to make here is, yeah. you know, maybe the label of addiction isn't so important, right? And maybe mm-hmm. it isn't so black and white. And really, if we just kind of step back from that and can start to see people as human beings with oh, right. unhealthy patterns yeah. and helping kind of some of those people who still view addiction as like this stigma taboo mm-hmm. thing or this, how could you do that? How could you become a heroin addict? Like, I didn't think, you know, at 17 years old that that, that was going to happen to me. Right. Like, that's the farthest thing from the way that I grew up. And and so just kind of trying to get people who aren't in the world of addiction like you yeah. and I are to really see that addiction is very, very vast and mm-hmm. it, you know, can encompass anything in the world. And I think it can get you when you least expect it. And, it, and, I, and I feel like we are all one tragedy removed from turning to drugs for coping mechanisms or we're all one mistake removed from, you know, where you really need help for your mental health. And I think for us to kind of like, as humans look down at others or to go, oh, well, like, how could you do that? One of those things where, I mean, you don't use a drug and then immediately hit the streets homeless. It's a process. Yeah. You and I both kind of came from that like traditional NA culture. Mm-hmm. And something that's really interesting about us now that I think our friendship is really connected on is our agreeance around kind of there isn't really one recovery model. Right. And I don't really like labels and terms. You know, I don't want to sit here and say new age recovery. Some people say California sober. I don't yeah. personally really like that term. But, yeah. you know, just in general, like some of these challenges with the traditional 12 step culture, you know, yeah. the you're always going to be an addict. You can never put anything ever in your body again, or you're going to, that's a relapse and you're not clean. And, you know, if you're a heroin addict and you're, you know, working a program and you've got two years clean from heroin, but you use medicinal marijuana that's prescribed by a doctor, you're not in recovery. I'd love for our listeners to hear a little bit of your thoughts on that, because I know we both feel really strongly that Mm -hmm. that doesn't really apply to everybody. Well, I'm sure, you know, originally when AA was founded, that abstaining from all drugs was kind of like, well, that's what we got to start with. But it's progressed, you know, as life progresses, as society progresses, as we progress as people, and you realize that there's not one size fits all. You're you're never going to have a movie that everybody loves. Some of the greatest movies of all time are people that were like, what? What is the big deal with this movie? I hate it. Or some of the movies that people think is horrible and like, I love this movie. That's how we are as people. We're so different. I've seen people in the rooms of recovery, work the steps or die, mother effer. And you're like, <laughs> for someone who's new to walk into that, they could go, well, this isn't really working for me. So I guess I got to die. Yeah. You know, especially like the hardcore NA community mm-hmm. in Southern Arizona. Like it's, mm-hmm. it was very like that. And yeah. you know, again, we're talking 10, 15 years ago. I'm, yeah. I can't speak to it now. Well, yeah, it was, that's what it was for me. Yeah. Something that was a really big struggle for me was after so many years you know I had at this point almost three years clean and I was doing really well and I just at that point knew like the opiate addiction portion for me was done like that was just a part of my past I knew I was never going to use again and I had changed so much of you know my mental health and my people places and things that going into meetings started to be triggering for me because every day watching you know my sponsees and sponsors and watching people die and watching people come in and out of the rooms and for me personally in my experience I just started to like really struggle in meetings because it was like god you know I had a really good day today I haven't had a using dream in months I haven't thought about using in six months and now here I am in a week I've watched four people walk out and two of them didn't come back you know is that like a relatable experience for you absolutely I mean obviously you're going to see a lot of people die when you're working with people where the percentage of recovery is like 30%. So you're going to see that. 
that's not actually what was the most triggering for me. What was most triggering for me was I wasn't even thinking about drugs because when you get clean, you realize it's not the drugs. That was what we were using to cope with the real stuff. And so then I'm going in a room and they're talking about drugs and I'm like, oh, you know, and, and, and my career was in that. So I'm dealing with it at work all day already. And I'm seeing people at their lowest point, crisis response center. You're, you're dealing with people at their worst, you know, not them as human beings, but in their worst states you know what i mean at the at the bottom and so then i come to a room and it's like i'm hearing the same things i'm not getting inspired by this if i were trying to get clean i would not be inspired by this and it's not a judgment because we're all different once again i believe in evolution in in my recovery and being a human being and i wasn't evolving from the rooms for me what came to an end was when my son's mom and i had separated and I shared about it in a room, in a meeting, and I cried for the first time in a room full of people. Very, very much have a hard time with that. Not that crying is for whims or that I have this machismo where I can't cry, but I do have a little bit of that. And there's a whole story behind that. And I was very vulnerable and cried and shared about it, and nobody talked to me about it after the meeting. Nobody reached out to me after. Nobody said anything. And all of a sudden, the girls were hitting up my son's mom to find out the you know, her side, the guys were all hitting on her, trying to hook up with my son's mom. And it was like, so this is an example of the brotherhood or the sisterhood of recovery. And again, it doesn't represent Narcotics Anonymous or, you know, but it was certain individuals in that fellowship. But for me, that was when I was going, you know what? I've already been struggling. This is my, this is my out. I'm going to walk away and, and see how I am. And I was I never my recovery never looked better when I stopped going to the rooms. It doesn't mean it's gonna like that's what's for everybody, you know. I, yeah. It was a foundation for me that I needed. Twelve step programs are great. Yeah, they work absolutely. for some people, yeah. and you know we share we share the opinion of in our journeys. We both kind of reached a point where, like you said, the evolution. You know, we outgrew the rooms and we needed yeah. something different. And I think that's okay. And we want to save space for both paths. They're both valid. Absolutely. I want to switch to something that. Sure. You know, I think you and I have a little bit of difference on, and I think it's healthy to show where there's that difference. Okay. You know, I have this really strong opinion of, you know, you don't have to always be labeled an addict. Like, I, I don't personally identify as an addict. I agree with that. Do you identify as an addict today? No. Yeah. And I think where maybe a little bit of the difference comes in is, you know, for me, I took a different path than you. Like, you are fully clean and sober from mm -hmm. everything mm -hmm. and have been your 15 years. Mm -hmm. And I've taken that other recovery model, you know, where I've you know, had alcohol and plant medicine. Right. I have never touched narcotics or, you know, opiates or meth or right. amphetamines, any of that stuff. Those are all on my nose still. But I kind of really reached a place several years after this of feeling like I was in a place with my healing where I could handle that. And, you know, so far it's worked out well for me. This is my journey. I never encourage listeners, you know, to try something. Like everyone knows what works for them. For you, though, that's looked different. You have stayed fully clean and sober. Here's the thing. About that my tattoo artist is thriving and I've watched him grow and he smokes weed. he believes that he's clean I'm with him on that I've seen him step away from the stuff that was harmful to him and he's got his own business with his wife and son and you know he's, I, I love the guy and so like I see people like that I see you it's about being happy and free that's the thing is it's not really about the drugs that's the whole thing that's so ironic by a program called Narcotics Anonymous is that it's not about that we used because of stuff that we had gone through and it helped at first and then it stopped and and yet it doesn't mean that every single drug is gonna 
you know, this and that, blah, blah, blah. For me, I would be probably smoking weed if it worked for me. It's one of those things that, that does not work for me. And with alcohol, I know, this is something that's hard, is that I know I could have a couple of drinks here and there and be great, have a good time. But there is a little bit of fear that my mind would then go, see, I can do this. This isn't even my favorite high, so I'm going to go do this. And we make poor decisions, at least I made poor decisions when I was drunk. So I, I have, it's almost, a, it's fear-based and I'll admit it. It's not like I've been 15 years sober, like, I don't need anything ever again and I'm great. No, there's times when I'm like, I really wish I had a vice. I really wish I could numb myself. I don't want to go through these emotions. I, but I know that anything that I put in my body will temporarily relieve me of mental pain and then magnify it the next day. And that's what I have to tell myself. Yeah, I really appreciate your vulnerability and I'll give it right Mm -hmm. back here for a second. I had a really great relationship with those things for about four years. You know, Mm -hmm. I drank occasionally, socially, healthily, and, you know, same thing with plant medicine. And then my father was killed and Mm -hmm. I had a really traumatic year. And, you know, all of 2022 was really just having a pretty deeply unhealthy relationship with alcohol and, you know, drinking multiple nights a week. And so I saved space for, you know, again when I was good and when my mental health was good and when my trauma, you know, wasn't in my life and in my face every day, I was able to have that healthy relationship. And then when all these massive traumas happened really quickly, a really unhealthy relationship developed. And so now I've almost entirely removed alcohol from my life because I realized it started to become a, I'm using this to numb my feelings, not I'm having a drink, you know, once a month with a friend to be social. And so it's really easy how you can kind of fall back in that. I really want to end on a positive note here. I have one sure. last question for you on this section. Are you recovered? I think that there's a, there's a lot of people that would say that that's saying that you're cured, you know, and there's no more work to do. I mean, yes, I feel like I'm recovered from using hard drugs, from the pain of active addiction. Am I recovered as a human being? No, that's the daily, daily growth that we should be looking for. We shouldn't be the same person we are tomorrow that we were. I think if we all had the answer to life or we all knew what would be the point of continuing just to show others and otherwise because you're not learning anything new i don't think it would be enjoyable so recovered yes and no a recovered Um, drug addict but not a recovered human being right i mean i think that you know if i allow certain things that have happened in the past to manifest my thinking today then i'm doing something wrong and i need to work on that I think therapy and talking and, and, and there's so many different things you can do, you know, but I mean, yeah, I drink coffee every day and I know that if I were to stop drinking coffee, I would get headaches and I wouldn't feel good and I wouldn't I'd be lethargic. And so I know that that's in me. I know it's always there that I could always relapse. I could relapse right now and go, you know what? 15 years, that was a good run. To say recovered as if there's no more work to be done, but, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm comfortably healthy, comfortable and healthy, I should say. Mm, that's the goal. Yeah. All right, so moving into our yeah. second of two topics here. We talked a little bit about yeah. recovery. Mm-hmm. Let's get into the mental health aspect. Yeah. They go hand in hand. We really see the intricacies and kind of this is like the common ground between, I would say, most, if not all, people who deal with addiction yeah. is this mental health. I believe, you know, that the way out for society as a whole and humanity is through breaking the stigma and talking about mental health openly. Yeah. And I mean the ugly uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. what you talk about on Heavy Mental, what I'm talking about on this podcast. Do you agree? And if so, let's talk about it. I really, this is where I really, and it's not an anger, um, but it is, I guess I should say a disappointment. 
I understand why. I understand the stigma, but at the same time, it makes me mad because it's not a character defect. You know what I mean? It's the person is not um, less than because they they took their life or because they OD. They're they're not. That's not their their legacy. That's just how they happen to die. And it's not. If if they were struggling and they could have reached out before that, then that would have been good. But yet, really, people don't. They laugh at the at the people who are firing out of control. They stop to watch the car crash. Any of us are asking for help. What does that look like? What does yeah. that look like? And what's the help? Yeah, that is a very, I feel like we could do many episodes on mm-hmm. that question. You know, something I was reflecting on preparing for this episode and, you know, something you and I have talked about as well is when we include anxiety, depression, mm-hmm. PTSD, even ADHD, right? We could mm-hmm. say really and when we holistically zoom back, you know, I would argue almost every human being on this planet faces a mental wellness challenge at some point in their life, every single one of us. And so it's like, when do we normalize this? And when do we realize this is not a mental health thing? This is a human being. Life is really hard thing. I think for those of us who maybe become, and I I say it's not an addict, but people who become addicted to drugs, say for instance, as opposed to those who have used it in moderation, it either wasn't for them or they, you know, here's the thing, people abuse drugs when their life is not going well, when the things are not going okay. If people are doing great, they're not gonna abuse something because why would you alter, you know, happiness? Why would you change if your life is great? Why would you alter that? You wouldn't. So usually those who abuse, it's because mentally they're not doing well. Physically, they're not doing well. We could get into the whole pharmaceutical companies and painkillers and all that. But the thing about when you're not mentally well, like I remember going, I wish that I didn't have empathy for others. I wish that I didn't care. It would be nice to, it would be easy to exist with apathy. And then I realized that's a mental illness. That's mentally unwell. That's a sociopath. That's mental health. So when you're not worried or feeling anxiety or depression, if you don't care, that's mental health. That's a super vulnerable and really true. And, you know, my mental health journey has been long and challenging. I've, you know, honestly, at this point, been labeled just about every label in the book. Like, truly, I've gotten PTSD, CPTSD, anxiety, depression, bipolar, just so many labels. Mm -hmm. And really, it's just unhealed trauma. Yeah. And, you know, those different periods in my life that manifest different ways. And so, my next kind of point here is like this, looking at Western medicine, right? Like Western yeah. medicine's very like diagnose them and give them a pill. And that's great. You know, in some cases for some people, medication is very helpful. I am definitely pro-medication when appropriate. Right. And, you know, sometimes we really miss that, okay, here's a medication to kind of help you through this crisis, help you through this moment chemically. Now what's going on underneath? Like what's causing that? And when we don't address that core trauma, those core inner child wounds, you know, like you said, things going back to when you were 18, things for me when I was a kid, when we don't address that and we instead just, you're diagnosed bipolar, here's two pills, see you in 30 days. Do you feel like that's kind of hurting the problem right now with mental health? I have the experience of working in a facility where there are definitely certain individuals who need to be on medications. And unfortunately, it's mostly for the welfare of the community than it is necessarily for them. And that's the sad reality is that there are people without medications, they may, they may hurt themselves or they may hurt others. And 
you know, when you when you deal with schizoaffective disorder, schizophrenia, when you're dealing with the severity now, saying that most those diagnosed with schizophrenia are actually a victim of violence than someone who is a perpetrator. At the same time, though, there are definitely those who, because they were raised in a bad environment and have that that mental illness diagnosis, they are dangerous to other people without medication. And one of the revelations that I had working at CRC was, you know, when people would stop taking their medications and it was like, they were doing so well when they were on it, doing so well. Doing so well really was they weren't acting out. Their their loved ones didn't have to, quote, deal with their behavioral outbursts or whatever, but internally they were not doing well. They, you know, there's a movie called The Voices and I know I hate to like, you know, talk about a movie, especially a fiction movie, but it's with Ryan Reynolds, and it's kind of marketed as almost like a comedy, dark comedy horror or whatever. But it's there's a scene where his dog and his cat talk to him because he has you know schizophrenia, right? And he they're his friends, and then but eventually they start telling him kind of dark things to do. So he goes to the doctor, he gets on medication, he goes home, and there's a scene where the dog and the cat are staring at him and they're not talking, and he's going talk to me, he's yelling, and they're not talking to him, and it was suddenly this aha moment for me where it was like, yeah, if you're on medications, yeah, the cat and dog aren't talking to you, but then they're not talking to you. You had a dog and a cat, it was talking to you. And they were your only friend. And now that's not there anymore. Who is that benefiting by removing that? The people around him who think that he's crazy because he's talking to a dog and a cat, or the person themselves who are having amazing conversations with a dog and a cat. Right. Yeah. Which is totally my point, right? Like we can treat with medication and that's great. And we have to look at the kind of underlying issues and also like some of the issues maybe that can resurface or surface for the first time when we are on medication. And so it's just so complex, right? It's so gray. And the point I'm trying to make here is getting, you know, listeners into this, getting out of this black and white thinking, like, you know, that because recovery and mental health are just, they're just live in the gray, like the eternal gray. And, you know, medication is one very small pillar of a very big dynamic problem. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So last thing I want to talk about here in this mental health section is stigmas and biases or you know around masculinity and I think you're the perfect person to talk to about this my listeners you know can't see you right now Mm -hmm. but uh, you are you are covered in tattoos Uh head to toe and you know you used to like ride motorcycles and you love horror movies and you listen to rap music you have a tattoo on your face like typical you know they're small (laughs) typical you know you're you're a man's man right and you work out and all those things and something that you've shared a lot with me about and I really want them to hear from your perspective is kind of being this like picture of masculinity and what that's looked like in like mental health and recovery and showing your emotions and you know I know you and I've had very different experiences here because you know I'm a younger woman and people Mm -hmm. look at me and they're like what you were an addict like you know had no idea and they I'm a woman I'm allowed to cry right and so what's kind of your perspective on you know masculinity and like recovery and mental health and maybe how that's impacted you you know we discussed it before I was like that's a good topic because you know tattoos when you think about like the origin of tattoos so if we go back to that it really was um, originated to scare your opponent it was almost like war paint or armor that would intimidate your opponent when it came to war as a Polynesian countries that did it and then it, you know, manifested through the through through centuries into outlaw culture, which is gangs, prisons, bikers, you know, that kind of mentality of, you know, you have tattoos, so you're tough. And it's like this because it's physically painful, they can tolerate pain. And yet 
there's also a whole side of people who get tattoos because they're insecure with how they look. They are using it to um, deal with their mental health because the physical pain is taking them out of their own head. And so this is, I feel like I'm literally on the cusp in between that, that outlaw tough, but I'm also sensitive and, you know, insecure and, you know, have that, like, I didn't like the way I looked and wanted to, you know, it was, it was like, I could control how I looked by altering my body in this way. But it's also because of art and it's also because of, you know, a lot of other things. So I, I kind of see both sides and I'm a Gemini, so that probably makes sense. And, and my motto now today that I try to express is fearless, but kind. Fearless, I have the word fearless tattooed in my neck and I got it when I was doing my four step, a fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Fearless is a ridiculous word if you really think that you are. There's always gonna be something that we fear, whether it's spiders or whatever. Fearless for me is not being afraid of the threat of other people and yet being kind. And so I literally try to live that middle ground. When it comes to crying and vulnerability, I don't think that someone is not tough because of crying. For me personally, the short answer was when I had fallen in love with the, the second girl and then I was crying and she was like, I can't deal with crying. Just, I can't deal with this. And it was one of those moments where it, when you're under the influence of drugs, it was like devastating to hear that. And so for a while I had this, like, I can't cry in front of people, but it's not because of a machismo thing. I've watched people a lot stronger than me cry. You know, my best friend lost his son to suicide and then his brother to an overdose and then his other brother to suicide. And I've watched him walk through some of the biggest pain and I've seen him cry, but I've seen him, you know, that it's healthy and that he's, you know, healed. So I'm sorry if this is a long answer. To, I guess, you know, what was my view on machismo? I get it because it's a protective shield that a lot of us have. We put it on there so that you can't mess with us. It can backfire on us and we don't seek the help that we need because we're tough, right? Mm -hmm. World War II generation. You know, the generation that was before my dad's generation. My dad's was the boomer, even though generation I'm generation X the generation before him was called the, the silent generation or the great last great generation they did not talk about their feelings they came back from World War II with the, probably some of the most severe trauma you could possibly imagine and they didn't talk about it and that mentality is not healthy and I think we're in a world now where it's being re realized that that's not a healthy um, choice to make by not talking about it yeah, absolutely. I obviously can't empathize or relate to this typical, you know, male experience and especially, you know, when we talk about mental health and, you know, boys don't cry. And I think we're moving past that as a society, I hope yeah. a little bit. Kind of getting into this last section here, it's all recoverable. Yeah. And I know we share that belief. Can you share a little bit about your thoughts on like, do you think anyone can come back from anything, right? Mentally, addiction, anything they're going through in their life, like, is it all recoverable? I look at it as everything is 100% possible. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to happen. Being, being possible and it actually manifesting are two different things. When it comes to, yeah, recover, everything is recoverable. And I looked it up that word because we were trying to think of the name and I looked at recoverable is a word and it, there's a definition of it. And so I was like, okay, everything is recoverable. Yes, you can go through anything and you can recover from it. There are people that have walked through some of the most painful things that I have not. And for me to go, come on, you can do it because I went through this is not in a, in a sense um, fair. 
it's not it's not okay for me to say well i did this so you can do that it's different for everybody some things are just feel non-recoverable but i do believe that everything is yeah. if you're willing to work on it if you're willing to get help that feeling is very real i can relate to that of just feeling in a place in your life where everything is just so dark and so broken and so tough and it can feel so unrecoverable. And that's really the theme of this episode, right? Looking at our relationship, looking at your life, my life, our mental health, our addictions, just the dark, dark places we've yeah. both been. Like, look where we are now, I right? Know. Sitting at this table, recording this episode together. And I just really want listeners, you know, to, to understand that it's never too far gone. We can always come back. As long as we're living and breathing, we can recover. We do recover. Coming back to you know this like mental health and and these labels like that's not your identity like it's not your forever reality it's your reality right now and I think that's where you know suicide and a lot of these things come in it it feels like it's forever it feels like it's the reality and so what would you say to somebody right now you know who's struggling with addiction or mental health how would you spread that hope to them well I mean here's the thing I what I say in my show on heavy mental the way I end my show the way I usually begin my show is that the world is a better place with you in it, even if you don't believe it in the minute. And it's so important that you know that even though it, in the minute, it's okay to not be doing well. It's okay to not be doing well. It's okay. You don't have to be well every second. Sometimes it's learning that this is pushing us into being well, or that this is a growth process. Growing pains, physical growing pains hurt. I used to cry at night when I was a kid because my, when I was having those growing pains in my legs. And that's mentally, we need to go through those pains sometimes. It's okay. The whole thing about suicide is I totally understand. I mean, I had a gun in my mouth at one point. You know, part of my story is my uncle called me out of the blue and I had a gun in my mouth. So I know what it's like to reach that feeling where you feel like you can't imagine living, you know, with this pain. And yet, if you really, really think about it, every single emotion you've ever felt has not lasted. Yeah, that's... Everything, good and bad. It gave me chills. I... Also, as you know, um, after, you know, losing my pregnancy and my father mm-hmm. and multiple tragic losses at the end of 2021, you know, I put a loaded gun to my head in wow. front of my partner, you know, thank God he was there. And obviously, like, he's the reason I'm here right now. I can just relate to that desperation. Yeah. And that's my goal in this podcast is to always show people there's hope. You know, you don't have to be labeled with the addiction, you know, the label of addiction for all of your life. You don't have to be an addict for all of your life. You don't have to be your mental health diagnosis. Like that is not inherently who you are and you can come back from anything. And so I'm just so grateful that you were here today to share a little bit of your story and, you know, that we can show people like it is all recoverable. Thank you. And, and it was an honor to be to be on your show. And I really, really um, love what you're doing. And I think that if I am a testament to seeing your growth from when I met you in, you said 2016, and, and the trials and tribulations that you have walked through. You know, when you, I watched your first podcast and it was like, when you started to say all the things, I was like, oh my God, like, you know, it's one thing that you went through this, but it was like, yeah, your freedom was taken from you. You lost your dad and you lost a pregnancy and like, all these things that, that went on in your life. And yet you didn't allow it to knock you down for good. My friend that was on the show, my best friend was on my show a month ago, lost his son, 14 years old to suicide, lost his brother, two brothers. He wanted to name the show Refined, Not Defined. Mm. And that really says it all. What you just said was that we don't need to be defined on what has happened to us, what we've gone through. We can change that narrative. We can, we can come out of it and we can become something that's you know, a better version because of horrific things. 
I can look back at my at my past and go, yeah, there are things I wish I could have done differently, blah, blah, blah. But I don't have regrets because of what I do now for my job. Because now I can look at it all when I was going, when I was looking up in the air and being like, why? Why is this happening to me? God, you have forsaken me. All those things we did. Why, 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 why? Now I know the answer so that I can show the next person how they can get through it. I literally was just telling somebody this today, actually my partner's 16-year-old little brother, you know, because mm-hmm. he was apologizing for something from my past had come up, and he was like, I'm sorry you went through that. And I offered a reframe and said, you know, I don't regret anything. I wouldn't change a single thing because it all got me to where I am, you know. And in the moment, it felt like, why is this happening? I mean, prison was just the lowest point of yeah. my life, feeling just utter suffering and despair. And after losing my dad and... I look back now and I can see that all of that made me who I am. I'm resilient. I'm strong. And, you know, I respect life. I respect drugs. And so it's really kind of, you know, just gratitude, really. So much gratitude. Yeah. Real quick before we sign off, I would love if you could share how people can listen to Heavy Mental. Oh, sure. Um, Downtownradio.org. You go to that. um, And then there is a, I think you can get the app from there. Or go to your app store, Downtown Radio Tucson. Um, if you are local in Tucson, it's 99.1 FM, but the radius doesn't reach far because it is literally the slogan is the antidote to corporate radio. So we are downtown radio. We do not play the mainstream stuff. We um, Every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. is my show. And yeah, you can download the app, downtownradio.org, or go to your app store, Downtown Radio Tucson. Heavy mental heavy mental thank you so much for being here today i love you love you too and thanks for having me on your show i'm so proud of you i'm so proud of me i'm so proud of us and you know i can't say it enough but i'll say it one more time it's all recoverable yeah it's all recoverable for sure